You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. The reading from Luke 7, verses 18 to 35. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves not having been baptized by him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, He has a demon." The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. This is the word of the Lord. Happy Thanksgiving. It's good to be with you. My name is Dennis, and I'm uh, speaking this morning in place of of Jim. And uh, my son-in-law about a month ago, gave me this t-shirt, and I thought it's the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and so I thought it was appropriate to wear this. Speaking of being thankful, are we thankful for Lizzie and Patrick and Susan and Jean and the choir for leading us? Is that beautiful or what? Wow, that was, that was awesome. In 1993, FBI agents conducted a raid on the Southwood Psychiatric Hospital in San Diego, He was under investigation for medical insurance fraud, and after a 12-hour day of reviewing medical records, the agents were famished, so the agent in charge called a local pizzeria there in San Diego to order dinner for his team. 
According to Snopes.com, this conversation actually took place. FBI agent, I'd like to order 19 large pizzas and 67 cans of soda. Pizza guy, and where would you like these to be delivered? FBI agent, we're over at the psychiatric hospital. <laughs> Pizza guy, the psychiatric hospital? FBI agent, that's right, I'm an FBI agent. Pizza guy, you're an FBI agent. FBI agent, that's correct, just about everybody here is. <laughs> Pizza guy, and you're at the psychiatric hospital. FBI agent, that's correct. And make sure you don't go through the front doors. We have them locked. <laughs> You'll have to go around to the back to the service entrance to deliver the pizzas. Pizza guy, and you say you're FBI agents. <laughs> FBI agent, that's right. How soon can you have the pizzas here? Pizza guy, and everyone at the psychiatric hospital is an FBI agent. FBI agent, that's right. We've been here all day and we're starving. Pizza guy, how are you gonna pay for all of this? FBI agent, I have my checkbook right here. Pizza guy, and you're all FBI agents. <laughs> FBI agent, that's right. Everyone here is an FBI agent. Can you remember to bring the pizzas and sodas to the service entrance in the rear? We have the front doors locked. Pizza guy, I don't think so. Click. <laughs> <laughs> and right here we have the human dilemma of doubt. When you were wondering, how is he ever going to tie this in? Well, here we go. It may be tenuous, but we're, we're going for it. When is doubt reasonable? And when is doubt mistaken? When is doubt healthy? And when is it dysfunctional? Why is doubt sometimes helpful to our spiritual development? And sometimes it can lead to losing one's faith. Like the pizza guy, sometimes what we perceive isn't reality, although his doubt was 100% logical. There was the tie-in. Pretty good, huh? So what we see in today's scripture is a spiritual giant, John the Baptist, wrestling with doubt. And there's so much that we can learn about faith and life and ourself from John's example. Are you familiar with the term hormesis? It's a scientific basis for vaccinations. A vaccination is a small dose of a virus so one's immune system can build a resistance to the virus. Doubt in proper dosage can be a vaccination for our faith. Timothy Keller said it this way, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blissfully go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the, or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen to her own doubts, which should, uh, which should only be discarded after long reflection. Believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only their own, but their friends and neighbors. That's where we find John the Baptist here in Luke chapter 7. John is in prison due to speaking truth to power by pointing out to King Herod that he should not have married his brother's wife. John is under the threat of torture and a brutal death. In fact, he won't leave prison. He'll be beheaded. In John's weariness and fear, he wrestles with doubt, as would 
us in the same circumstances. And that's what we see starting in verse 18. John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who has come or should we expect someone else? When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many people who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. This is an incredible scene right here. Remember that John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Both John the Baptist and Jesus had miraculous births where angels appeared to John's father, Zechariah, and then also to Jesus' mother, Mary. Scripture records that John was filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus walked by John and his disciples, and, and as he walked by, John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then John goes on to state that he was not even worthy to untie the sandals that Jesus was wearing. Then it was John who baptized Jesus and saw the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus as a dove and heard the voice of the Father say, this is my son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In other words, John had a lifetime of supernatural, powerful spiritual experience with Jesus, yet here in Luke chapter 7, the verse we just read, we see John wrestling with doubt. Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Before we judge John as lacking in faith, let's acknowledge our common human frailty, especially in the midst of tragedy or adversity. John is exhausted. He's suffering in prison. He's facing death by the sword in his early 30s. John is feeling what we feel sometimes, weariness and discouragement. And in the valley of uncertainty, doubt begins to circle John's soul like a vulture. Have you ever been there? I know I have. So how does Jesus respond? Look down at verse 22, if you would. So... Jesus replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Notice, first of all, how Jesus did not respond to John's doubt. He didn't reprimand John for lack of faith. Jesus wasn't offended by John's questioning. Jesus interacts with John by giving him assurance of faith by the evidence in Jesus' life. Jesus is functionally saying, John, because I'm God's eternal only son, I'm doing these miracles, proving who I am, but also to relieve human suffering, showing that God cares. See the evidence of my life and be at peace. He said it this way, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Let's contemplate for a moment this morning the evidence of Jesus' life. What is the evidence of the impact of Jesus' life through history and around the globe since his resurrection and ascension into heaven? Then what is the evidence in individual lives, my life, in your life, in people that you know? The evidence is overwhelming that Jesus Christ has brought more good into the world than any other human in human history. More hospitals have been built, more orphanages open, more schools have been run, more poor people have been brought out of poverty due to this man, Jesus. We have in our midst this morning missionaries. 
in our midst that are evidence of this. You see, Jesus was saying to his half-cousin, John the Baptist, look at the evidence. Where does that point you? You will know a tree by its fruit, or as Jesus said in verse 35, wisdom is proved right by all her children. In other words, what are the outcomes, the evidence in Jesus' life? What is the fruit of Jesus' life, the children of his wisdom? So John's disciples go back to John, and they report back Jesus' message. Then Jesus turns to his followers, and he begins to talk about John. Look down at verse 24. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind. In other words, something that's a phenomenon that's here and then gone. If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it was written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they'd been baptized with John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purposes for themselves because they had not repented and been baptized by John. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking. You say here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her children. This is astounding. First of all, Jesus is elevating John as one of the brightest lights in human history. But don't miss this. Jesus, he's saying that John was like us, deeply human. Not only human with dignity and worth given to us by God our creator is made in his image, but also as frail human beings who get confused and get anxious. Part of what Jesus was saying then through this scripture is that it's okay to be human. It's normal to get tired, to feel face uh, fear and uncertainty. And so Jesus welcomed John's questioning his honest wrestling with life and with doubts while he was in jail. Then Jesus takes the conversation into a fascinating direction. Jesus broadens the conversation of John's life with the contrast between the tax collectors and sinners' reaction to Jesus and the Pharisees' and the religious leaders' reaction to Jesus. And in this contrast, we can learn the difference between healthy doubt which can ultimately build a stronger faith as opposed to dysfunctional skepticism, which can ruin our faith. The tax collectors and sinners looked at the evidence of John the Baptist and Jesus' lives with open minds and open hearts. They saw evidence beyond a reasonable doubt for putting their faith in God through Jesus Christ. They wrestled with normal human doubt without throwing out faith in Jesus. But strangely enough, counterintuitively, it was the Pharisees, it was the religious leaders who took doubt into the realm of skepticism with closed minds and hard hearts. If Jesus was happy, they criticized him as not taking life seriously. Then when Jesus was serious about the problems of the world, they criticized him as being morbid, the ultimate buzzkill. 
In other words, there wasn't anything Jesus could say or do that would change their minds. They weren't wrestling with honest doubt. They were closed-minded with absolute certainty that their opinion was 100% right and Jesus was 100% wrong. They were similar to a child who covers their ears and say, I can't hear you. That's what verse 32 is about. They're like children sitting in the marketplace calling each other, we played the flute for you, you did not dance. We sang a dirge, you did not cry. You see, cynical skepticism says, don't bother me with evidence that doesn't back up my certainty. I've already made up my mind not to believe no matter what. That's where the religious leaders were. They had closed minds and hard hearts. They were skeptics and cynics. Weak faith says, don't bother me with honest questions like John. They scare me. I've already made up my mind to believe this even though there's new information which might make me wiser and stronger and deeper in my faith. I must stay in a safe, warm cocoon rather than wrestle out to fly like a butterfly. Healthy faith says, I do believe. Help me with my unbelief. I do believe, but I can still learn. I can still deepen my understanding. I do believe, but I don't have all the answers, and I want to continue learning and growing. Healthy faith is humble. Notice that John's doubt was rooted in relationship with Jesus. It was vulnerable. It was honest, which is why Jesus welcomed John's questioning. But the Pharisees' doubt was judgmental and arrogant. It was certain in the absolute finality of their judgment. Therefore, Jesus couldn't reach their hearts. The same was true when Pilate interrogated Jesus and said, what is truth? Do you notice in the scripture that Jesus didn't even bother to respond to Pilate at all? He didn't say anything. Why? Because he knew that Pilate wasn't wrestling with honest doubt. Pilate was held captive by hard-hearted skepticism. Pilate didn't want to know Jesus. He just wanted to hold on to his comfortable life. Pilate, not God, was in control of Pilate's life. What is a kid's favorite question? I think it's why, don't you think so? Why? It can drive a parent absolutely nuts. But it's how a child learns and grows. They learn by asking questions and finding good answers. It's interesting that the New York City Library has an Ask the Librarian phone line, and to this day they receive over 30,000 calls a year to that line, Ask the Librarian. People have questions, so even in the age of the internet and Google, they many times call librarian at New York City Library. Here's some of the questions that they ask the librarian. One person asked, how do you put up wallpaper? Good question. They asked, I have the paper, I have the paste, I have the wall, but what do I do next? Does the paste go on the wall or the paper? I've tried both and it doesn't seem to work. <laughs> My question is, how many divorces have happened because couples have tried to do wallpaper together? That's my question. Another question was, what does it mean when you dream and you're chased by an elephant? It means you need to apologize to your wife right away. Right away. Okay, knucklehead, go home and say, it's my fault. I don't know what I did, but I did it. So just, just show some wisdom. Then someone once called the New York City Library, asked the librarian line, and they were looking for Charles Darwin's book on oranges and peaches. <laughs> the librarian gently said, I think you're looking for the book on the origin of the species. 
which is kind of kind of like about you know oranges and peaches. You t- teachers will tell you there's no dumb questions, but some get close to that line, I think. But the Bible's clear. Life and faith include mystery. Wouldn't you agree with that? We wrestle with doubts, like a four-year-old asking why. We're trying to figure out ourselves in life. We don't always understand. The brilliant author, Philip Yancey, who happens to live over in Evergreen, wrote this. The great divide separating belief and unbelief reduces down to one simple question. Is the visible world around us all there is? The unsure of the answer to that question live in the borderlands. They wonder whether faith in an unseen world is wishful thinking. Does faith delude us into seeing a world that doesn't exist, or does it reveal the existence of a world we can't see without it? Let's just take a moment before we go into communion and apply this scripture to our lives. What can we learn about wrestling with honest doubt while avoiding closed-minded skepticism? C.S. Lewis wrestled with doubt, especially when his wife Joy died of cancer, broke his heart. And one of the conclusions he came to was doubt your doubts. Don't take your doubts as absolute fact. In 2001, American scientists launched the Wilkinson Microwave Anatostrophe Probe into space. The WMAP has given us evidence which backed up previous experiments that all visible matter in the universe, from the chair you're sitting on to the stars and the sun in the sky, only makes up 4% of matter. Did you catch that? 96% of the universe is made up of dark matter and dark energy, neither of which we can see with with our eyes. 96% of the universe we can't see with our eyes. Dark matter and dark energy, the only way we can deduce it is is it affects like refracting the light from stars. What's the lesson here? Don't assume you know it all. You don't. Neither do I. None of us do. The smartest of us don't know it all. There just might be a hungry FBI agent in the local psychiatric hospital, as unlikely as that would seem. Therefore, don't reject or deny your honest doubts, but cross-examine them. Ask if there's sufficient evidence for them. Ask if there's evidence against your doubts. Look into it. That's what it means to wrestle with doubts like John the Baptist took his honest doubt to Jesus for a reality check. Doubt your doubts. Cross-examine them. A second practical lesson from this scripture is to encourage one another's faith. Be a community that encourages people's faith, especially in the midst of their struggles in life. That's what Jesus did with John the Baptist, encouraging him. It says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Then Jude 1.22 instructs us to be merciful with those who doubt. So we listen empathetically, and we empathize genuinely, and we speak slowly and wisely, and maybe not say anything at all. We encourage each other, similar to how Jesus encouraged John in his time in prison. The last lesson is to love your way through doubt rather than think your way out of doubt. Now, I'm not saying don't think. Doubting your doubts is about thinking and thinking well. What I am saying that life 
in its final analysis, is about relationship, not certainty. John, while alone and suffering in prison, went to his beloved cousin, Jesus, for comfort. In the midst of doubt, John leaned into his relationship with Jesus. So should we. Remember what Job said when everything had been taken away from him and he was suffering in unimaginable ways. He said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You see, when in doubt, it's a time to double down on our relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with family and friends, our relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ, in church fellowship. Doubt is a time to remember the foundation of life is love, to remember that God is love, to believe that God loves us with a never-ending love, to embrace that what is most important in life is to be loved by God and then to love God in return with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then out of God's love poured abundantly into our hearts by his Holy Spirit to love our neighbor as ourself and even take it to the next level, like Jesus, to even love our enemies. Richard Foster is a best-selling Christian uh, author and ordained uh, Quaker minister. And he was skiing at Loveland with his son, Nathan. And while riding the ski lift, Nathan took a risk and he opened up to his father about his disillusionment with church. So summoning up his, his courage, Nathan said, Dad, I hate going to church. It's nothing against God. I just don't see the point. Then he braced himself for a torrent of, of, of arguments and apologetics from his, his dad, the pastor, and he was shocked when his, his dad responded gently, sadly, son, many churches today are simply organized ways of keeping people from God. Nathan almost fell off the chairlift right there in surprise. So emboldened, he just poured out his heart and he said, okay, since Jesus paid such attention to the poor and disenfranchised, why isn't the, the church the world's epicenter for racial, economic, and social justice I found more grace and love and worn out folks in a local bar than those in the pew. And instead of allowing our pastors to be real human beings with real problems, we prefer some sort of overworked rock stars who seem more interested in making money than being like Jesus. His dad chuckled and replied, good questions, Nate, overworked rock stars. That's funny. You've obviously put some thought into this. And Nate was surprised that his rant didn't make his preacher dad defensive, but his dad was humble and vulnerable and loving. And Nathan Foster has since gone on record as saying that on the chairlift at Loveland with his dad, the pastor, wrestling with his doubts became the turning point, the inflection point of his walk with Christ. You see, we don't overcome doubts with arguments. We walk through doubts with love. We find answers in love that we can't see any other way. So as we come before the Lord now, the apex, the center of worship, coming before Christ at his table, let's honestly bring all of ourselves without any pretension to Jesus, bringing our failures, our anxiety, our doubts. Jesus welcomes all of us to his table as we draw near to him in worship. 
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it and he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for the remission of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. Let us take these elements with sincere hearts, coming to Christ for the first time or coming back to Christ. But let us draw near to him, seeking him. And it tells us in Jeremiah that we will find him if we seek him with all of our heart. God bless you as you enjoy the Lord's Supper. 